Pizza, pizza. Pizza, pizza. Pizza, pizza. Hey guys, just letting all you uh, cool people out there know that, yes, this is not a regular video on my channel. I just decided to make this when I was searching up on YouTube for Pizza Pizza Little Caesars clips, and I realized that there are none. So I decided to make this video just to rectify that, so now there is a full compilation of the Little Caesars guy saying Pizza Pizza. Uh, now that exists, uh, I've done one good deed in my life so far, and this has been it. I know there's a lot of restaurants, but why not have a restaurant where you could do both? Who said you can't do both where you could actually take the whole family out, the kids get treated like first-class citizens, and you could have good quality food? So that's what really drove me to look at the opportunity to open a restaurant myself. I sent that letter out, and it's amazing what happened next. I learned that all those years of success I had gave me a false sense of success and I didn't have enough cash in the bank. I didn't have enough reserves. I wasn't looking at my balance sheet. And I think the other struggle I came across a lot is the first times I had people coming up to me and asking for a raise, that didn't feel right to me. I was like, why are you asking me for a raise? I didn't like that permission thing. So my first question back to them was, I don't know, should you get a raise? Then saying, you got to come with me. I want to go on another one. And she was like, no, I don't want to do that. So I started doing more on my own. We did less together and one thing led to another. Hello, I'm Nick Cirillo. And believe it or not, I'm 58 years old right now. Um, <laughs> and mostly in the restaurant business here, I'm actually in the Crystal Lake restaurant. Nick's Pizza and Pub in Crystal Lake. I also have another restaurant, Nick's Pizza and Pub in Elgin as well. So the restaurant business is what I've been in for the last 25 years. In addition to that, out of the restaurant business and out of the training systems and things that we've built in this company has turned into its own consulting and training business around culture and leadership, which is called the Trust and Track Institute Leadership Group. I do that as well. I, in addition to writing a book uh, a couple of years ago called A Slice of the Pie, How to Build a Big Little Business. So those are my businesses. Sums them up pretty good for now. And so you're right outside Chicago, basically? Yeah, just outside the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And so you're mainly known for having a pizza restaurant or over the last few years, have you switched into a new type of business, like you said, like consulting? Mostly known for the pizza restaurants. They're big full service restaurants, 350 seats, 9,000 square feet, you know, big places. You know, we have almost 200 team members. So I've been fortunate just the way I run the business. I've thrown clear purpose and values. As a result of that, some really cool things just happened in our restaurants and as a result, I've gotten a lot of national press out of how we take care of our team and how we run the business, the organization, which, again, had a lot of people interested in what we were doing, it, how we were doing it. And I wanted to share that with others. I started training other business owners, not just restaurants, but other businesses as well. So, yes, I'm more known for the restaurant industry and getting to also be known as a coaching and development training business and consulting. So what's made your pizza restaurant even more special than maybe some other ones? Is it the systems that you're talking about? Yeah, for sure. I've been very much a systems-oriented person. Believe it or not, I was in 
I know this sounds funny because people are like, how'd you go from construction? I was a carpenter <laughs> when I got out of college and got married and I used to build custom homes. Grew up in Chicago and worked actually as a union carpenter in the city and then started building custom homes. I had a construction business, me and my brother. My brother still has that construction business. After about 11, 12 years of that, that's three kids of my own. That's when I decided to build my restaurants. And I think that background really gave me engineering mindset for having systems in the restaurants. Also, I think a drive to want to have systems so that I would actually have some balance in my life. So when I took a day off, the team knew what to do without me being there. I'm not much on permission-based leadership, not a fan of command and control kind of leadership. So those systems that I started building intuitively on my own back in 1995 also evolved. I met a consultant, this guy, Rudy Mick, and he helped us define our purpose and our values. In 2002, that was a game changer for me. And like, holy cow, here's the secret to creating meaning at work, meaning in people's lives that come to work at Nix. And I just took that process and went head, feet, everything into creating systems around purpose and values in our training and everything we do. That's a kind of a long answer, but yeah, that's how we got there. Would you say like perseverance has been pretty key in your success? Yes, I am uh, very much self-discipline and perseverance. Yes, for sure. I just maybe a little obsessive <laughs> too. You know, when I get focused on something, I just really stick with it and stick with it and stick with it and follow through. And I'm pretty detailed oriented. I understand the benefits. I heard a quote the other day actually about, I'm trying to think what book I read this in. I read a lot. Self-discipline is the key to freedom. Have you heard that before? Yeah. It might be Jocko. Jocko Willink. He says discipline equals freedom. Yeah, it might have been. Because once you start losing that, it seems like it doesn't seem like a big deal at first, but I think slowly systems like we had talked about kind of start failing, it seems like. Yes, for sure. I enjoyed his book. Yeah. yeah I wrote down perseverance because before I started this podcast, and I think a way I had talked to you about it, you were one of a few people I wrote down that eventually wanted to have on my podcast. And I looked at the first email I sent was 725-2017. So we're talking about three to four years as far as when people listen to this as far as like trying to reach out and get you on the podcast. I know you're a busy guy, but I remember hearing your story and I discussed this on the pre-interview with you and I hadn't listened to it in probably six or seven years, but I still remembered a lot of good parts of it, you know, and it just really hit home with me. So I'm very excited to have you on. And I just wanted to point that out because I know there's some people who have that issue with perseverance, like thinking that, hey, just because maybe after the first year it doesn't work that they should give up. But it's like, I kept trying to ping you and trying to get you and it doesn't hurt my feelings at all. It's just like, I know people are busy or whatever, but you got to keep going if you're going to be successful in business. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Obviously, <laughs> you have experience with that too, especially I'm sure reaching out to people on LinkedIn when not everybody's paying attention to LinkedIn that much, it's, but it's key. When I wanted to open my second restaurant, I figured out a way to do that. And actually, I don't thinking about that, Austin, sometimes perseverance and maybe stubbornness can also get in the way too. I think it's interesting that you have this millionaire interview process I think my perseverance or stubbornness to open a third restaurant in Chicago probably is something maybe I should have let go of. Maybe I shouldn't have stayed 
you know, I tried it in 2007 and then I tried it again in 2018 and it failed in 2018. And maybe I should have gave up after the first try. I don't know. But I think what's fun about this interview is what I intend to do is be totally honest with you and tell you the truth that not all these things end up being good stories, right? Sometimes we have challenges. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Like you said, you coming on and cheering it. So should we talk about anything else overall before we rewind to you getting in the construction business with your brother? Yeah, I'm, I'm an open book. I think that the parts that I think that will be beneficial to the audience is the foundation that I built around the organization that helped me create some really great success and also has helped me through some mistakes, <laughs> stupid ass mistakes that I've made. So. That's probably a good place to start. Why don't we talk about, like, when did you graduate high school? I graduated in 1980. Did you end up going to college? For a whole semester, yes. I went. <laughs> that was about it. Were you born and raised in Chicago? Yes, I was born and raised in Chicago. We actually moved out to the suburbs when I was a freshman year of high school. We moved out to a northwest suburb, Barrington, just outside of Chicago. And to Barrington High School, although all my friends were still in the city. And so it was a really challenging change for me to go from the neighborhood to a pretty affluent community. <laughs> uh, not something I really ever connected with really well. When I was 16, I had my driver's license. 17, I found myself going back to my old neighborhood a lot. So it was a unique time. But I'm, I'm grateful for the experience because it definitely widened my perspective, the benefit of getting out of the neighborhood, right? Widen my perspective and see what else is out there in the world, for sure. Well, why did y'all move? Did your parents get a raise or something like that? Yeah, my dad was an entrepreneur. He had his own restaurants. As a kid, I worked in his restaurants. And he also had his own remodeling business as well. So he was doing pretty well. And was not a fan of Chicago public high schools, you know, definitely didn't want his kids going to a Chicago high school. Back in those days, it was pretty rough, I guess, and thought we would get a better education outside of the city. And so you were born and raised in the restaurant business. And I guess you said he did remodeling and construction. So that's kind of led you to your first entrepreneur adventures as well. Yeah, you know, and it's funny, Austin, because said this a few times, Joe, by the time I finished high school and started working, my dad had a place in the heart of the city and it's called the Pilsen neighborhood, a little Chicago Italian beef stand, you know, that I worked in as a kid, you know, 10, 11 years old, 12 years old, making sandwiches, taking our sandwiches to the market, the fish market and the vegetable market in the city was really vibrant and crazy back then. It's not even barely even existent these days. But I, I learned a lot about the restaurant business all those years, you know, and all through high school and my dad's places. So much so that by the time I finished high school, I told my dad, Dad, I am burned out of restaurants. I never want to get in the restaurant business again. <laughs> so, so much for saying never, right? <laughs> right. So you graduate in 1980. I guess you're about 18 years old right at that point. And then you come out, end up being a contractor outside of graduating and doing a semester of college. Yeah, I think that experience of growing up in an entrepreneurial family, I don't even know if I really called it entrepreneurship back then. I mean, it wasn't much of a thing, but it just was in my blood. So working as a union carpenter at McCormick Place, actually, in the city, and then some other commercial buildings, 
and then really being intrigued. I really liked building houses. So I actually went to work for a contractor building houses and really loved that. I love that working with my hands and creating someone's home. But I think the upside downside of working for my dad all those years, it's like I always had this perception that I could do it better myself. You know, so I started taking on side jobs and started doing my own, you know, it started with remodeling basements to building decks. And my brother graduated college with an architecture degree. And then we decided to build our first spec home on our own. And that led to us having our own business. We'd like to say no big, but the truth is little things can really add up and suppressing emotions only gets you so far. Like when I read my negative podcast reviews, I didn't think it was a big deal that I cried myself to sleep every night. But you know what? I should have talked to someone sooner about this. You know, needing help doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means you're human. We all talk to our friends when we're experiencing issues, but they don't always give the advice we need. Like when I talked to my make-believe friend about how I can become a better podcaster, and he just told me that I should start making more sexual and immature references on the podcast. And I'm not sure that's the best advice. You know, getting unbiased feedback and advice from a licensed professional can be refreshing and actually rewarding. When you're in a low point, you might feel alone, but over 50% of Americans struggle with their mental health. When I reached out to Talkspace, you know, I finally had someone to talk to other than my make-believe friends. And it felt awesome. We all need help sometimes. And asking for support when you need it is actually a sign of strength. I love Talkspace because I finally have a real friend to talk to. Plus, the Talkspace app makes it easy to connect with your licensed therapist on your schedule without having to wait weeks before your next appointment. You can go anywhere and take your therapist with you. Talkspace works around your schedule at your convenience. Send and receive unlimited messages with your dedicated therapist in the app. Schedule live video sessions with your licensed therapist from anywhere. Start feeling better with a single message. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code MILLIONAIRE. That's $100 off when you use code MILLIONAIRE at Talkspace.com. Did you know that companies that blog consistently receive 67% more leads than those that don't? Consistent blogging is important, but who has the time to research keywords, come up with topics, write content, and more? BKA Content, a content writing agency with 10 plus years of experience, now offers a monthly subscription that will do it all for you. They offer different sized packages depending on how many blogs per month you'd like. You'll have a dedicated account manager that will do all your keyword research and topic creation and blog writing. You can even get social media posts, stock images, and meta entitled tags. All of your monthly blog posts deliver directly to your inbox, 100% ready to publish. If you sign up right now, you can get up to one month's worth of blogs for free. Go to bkacontent.com forward slash millionaire to learn more and get your free month of blogs. That's bkacontent.com forward slash millionaire to learn more and again, get your free month of blogs. And so you officially started that what, a couple of years outside of college. I mean, I know you went for a semester of college, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So I started in construction pretty quickly. It was good money back then to be a union carpenter. Met my ex-wife at the time, got married, 
And I think a lot of people experience, uh, you have that first kid and you're like, holy crap, I got another mouth to feed. I got to, <laughs> I got to get serious about my life, you know? And so that's why I really dedicated a lot of my time to working and starting to grow something more that could be something more for my own family. So I got married, I think 85 and started a family pretty young. So I guess what, 23, 24 is when you're married and have a kid? Yeah, 23. And so at what point did you start your own first company? I think we had that uh, construction business probably five, six years later. And I was 32 when I opened the restaurants. So the construction business was unique. I mean, it was a partnership with my brother. And it was a little easier because it was basically, a, you know, we had a crew of guys and guys are pretty, crew of construction guys, pretty easy to manage. You know, we were just all worked hard, you know, and it was one house and then we do another house. And, you know, we didn't really have more than two, three projects at a time. When I built my restaurant, that was a whole different animal. For one, I designed it myself and didn't have money. So I had to build it myself. I had all the guys I used to do side jobs with, my friend that was a HVAC guy, my friend that was a plumber, my friend that was an electrician, you know, calling them up for favors. It's like, okay, guys, it's time to help me out here. I'm doing my own thing. Could you come help me? You know, and basically I paid them by being their laborer, you know, so I had a lot of 10 o'clock nights building the restaurant myself from the ground up and a lot of designing it as I went too, because I built it out of these big old barns. So uh, in order to save money, in the suburbs, I started actually driving around northern Illinois, southern Wisconsin, looking for barns that were falling down and knocking on the farmer's door and asking them, hey, you know, you want to get rid of that barn that's going to hurt somebody if you don't get rid of it? And, you know, and usually the farmer's are like, yeah, please take it off my hands. So my labor was how I got the material as well. So at 32 was really the probably a turning point for me in building my own business. But that was 1995. And like you said, you were 32 years old. Do you mind if we just talk a little bit before you make that transition? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you said you were partners with your brother doing construction as a contractor before that, right? Yes. What type of money were you making then? And why did you want to like actually end up making your own restaurant? Oh, geez. I can't remember actual specific dollar amounts back then, but I had three kids. I had stayed out in the suburbs because we were building custom homes in the suburbs, the Crystal Lake restaurants uh, near where I had actually eventually built my own home for my family. Once we started selling our first spec home, then the second, you know, we did expand into big, like 8,000, 10,000 square foot homes. Uh, and we would do one or two at a time back in the 80s, I guess this is early 90s, we were doing fine for ourselves. I mean, I had a nice house. I would say, you know, I was concerned. I was like, okay, this isn't going to be enough for me to put my all three of my kids through college, but we're middle class and doing okay. We lived in the suburbs and, you know, I would build the home. So I was the lead carpenter. My brother was more on the architecture side. So I was more specific to framing and getting the houses up. And then my brother would do the design and he was on the more customer service end of it. So I didn't have to build the restaurant business to make more money. I could have stayed with the construction business. Why did you really want to open the pizza restaurant then? Because to me, like if I was in your shoes, I'd be like, hey, maybe I want to do something other than just a wood framing. Maybe I can upgrade in the construction industry since that's my knowledge. Yeah, that's a really good point. I appreciate the opportunity to reflect back. I don't often get that question. So 
I still enjoy building things, building houses. I, I loved being able to step back and see what you did at the end of the day and know that you're building someone's home that they're going to bring their family into. So there's a lot of aspects I really enjoyed about it. The other part was I was thinking, though, you know, I can't do this forever, especially physically. It's really demanding. I, I'm not good at doing things halfway. And that was part of it. I would say the thing that really made a difference for me was taking my kids, my family, we'd go out to eat. And when we go out to eat, I repeatedly had a bad experience. Either we take the kids to a kid place where the kids would be happy, you know, like a, nothing against Chuck E. Cheese, but, you know, we take them to a Chuck E. Cheese place and the kids would like playing the games, but mom and dad had no good food or another kind of place like that where the kids could have fun, but the parents didn't like the food. Or we would go to a nicer restaurant where me and my ex-wife, you know, we enjoyed the experience of good food and a little wine. And then the kids had to be quiet and had to be really well-behaved. And the servers would come to the table and uh, they look at you like, oh, you got kids with you. And then my angels might, you know, act out a little bit, believe it or not, you know, and, uh, you know, and then they would, also give you like, treat the kids like second-class citizens. And that really bothered me. I know there's a lot of restaurants, but why not have a restaurant where you could do both? Who says you can't do both where you could actually take the whole family out? The kids get treated like first-class citizens and you could have good quality food. So that's what really drove me to look at the opportunity to open a restaurant myself. Although there's a lot of restaurants, there was just in that market, there was a gap for the whole family, for the neighbors, you know, and and that's where I thought I could do something about. Well, how long did you like sit on this idea and brainstorm it before you decided, hey, I'm going to go ahead and open up a pizza restaurant? It took me a good year for sure. Maybe a little longer than that. Yeah, it was a year of thinking about it, talking through it with my family, my dad, my brother. It turns out our construction office was actually in the building that's right now across the street from where the restaurant stands. But I talked about it. I experimented with other restaurants. I kind of thought about my theory. I had a problem, though, is I didn't have much money saved yet, you know, and I didn't know that really staying in the and procrastinating, staying in the construction business, I was making a living, but also I wasn't putting away a, a lot of money either. We weren't doing that well. That's where I got tired of waiting and sitting on my idea after about a year. And I decided to figure out a way to make it happen. So went out and found a empty lot, which was right across the street. Got a really good deal on uh, the lot that was across the street from our office, uh, which was not on the main street of Crystal Lake. Uh was a little bit off, you know, about a half mile off the main avenue. But I figured it was a good location to build a restaurant on. What did your brother and your parents and anyone else that you told about the idea, what did they think about it? My brother was pretty supportive. He thought, you know, especially when I talked about the design, actually, what I had been thinking about was we get this magazine called Fine Home Building, which I think is still in publication. And there was an old barn that was in the picture of that magazine that I said, this would be a great idea for building a restaurant in this kind of style. So he was, he was pretty supportive. My dad, you know, he remembered that I told him that I never want to get in the restaurant business. He's pretty old school Italian, so every other word is an F-bomb. But, you know, he, so you can imagine what he's like, what are you effing nuts? You know, you said you never want to do that again. 
And ultimately, he was 100% supportive. He actually helped with the down payment of that empty lot and supported me to do it for sure. Well, how much was the lot? That was, it was $30,000 I had to come up with back then. It was a good chunk of change. How much did you have personally saved up? I had half of it. So I came up with half. My dad came up with the other half. And then I had to go get a loan, which was really difficult because I couldn't get a bank. So I was able to get the plans. My brother helped me with the design of the plans. Got that done first and then started looking for a loan. And it was much harder than I thought it would be, especially because I didn't know how to do a business plan and didn't have a business plan. And luckily, my dad had a relationship with a local bank because he had some properties stuff that he had built. So having the lot fully paid off made a difference for sure. Um, and then my dad's relationship with a banker in the area, it was a local bank. It wasn't like one of the big banks. I was able to get a loan, uh, which is actually pretty amazing. Uh, I look back at it. <laughs> that would never happen nowadays. And the loan was for the construction of it or the rest of the property? Just construction. Yeah, the property was paid off. So it was all for the construction, yes. So how much was the loan? The loan was a $500,000 loan, which was not quite enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember this because I had to go back for another couple hundred thousand. It's amazing. I built this for like 700000 back then. I did a lot of it myself. And that was only to just to get the building built when I started to get furniture and equipment and I was getting loans and friends of my dad from the restaurant business to lease stuff and get deals on stuff and go to auctions and all those kinds of things. It really was pretty scrappy and how I was able to get the equipment, the ovens and all that stuff in the restaurants. It was a, a unique experience for sure. Well, if it's okay, let's just go step by step on like what you do to do this. Cause, and if anyone wants to Google this right now, if you just Google Nick's Pizza Pub, that's what I did. You can see this, the image of it. This thing's monstrous, this restaurant. It looks like a three-story house almost. Yeah, if you scroll down on our website, you could do a virtual walkthrough of the restaurant too. Oh, nice. This is the big one we're talking about here because how many locations do you have now? I have two. Both restaurants, the Crystal Lake and the Elgin, are mirror images of each other. So they're both the same. So either one, that's exactly what they look like. So yeah, you got the $700,000 loan. Why don't we just again walk through after you get that loan? Are you stopping the construction stuff altogether and just focusing totally on building this restaurant? Or are you going to go ahead and build the restaurant part time while you're still doing construction? Like, what's your plan to open up the restaurant and how'd it go? Yes. Good question, Austin. I was doing both. I was working my union job, keeping my insurance for my family. And then after we got off at 3 30, I'd come right to the restaurant and work on that. Most of it, I had one guy, a labor guy that would help me. So it was really the two of us through most of the construction. On the weekends, I had buddies that I would do side jobs with. So I would have a crew of six guys on the weekends working together. But during the week, I mean, <laughs> funny story, Austin, I, I got the outside walls up just before I actually even had the roof on. I uh, got the outside walls up and I would put lights. I had like floodlights I'd put up on the corners of the walls and the outside walls while I was working on the inside walls. 
And, you know, it would get dark out and I'd have these floodlights on working till nine o'clock at night, you know, usually wrap it up by 10 o'clock. And one time the cops came and, you know, they, they come in or like not guns drawn, but they were like ready, you know, like what's going on here, you know? And, and I'm like, we'll hold up our hands. We're like, we're not doing anything, you know, we're just working. And they thought we're stealing stuff. And they were surprised that it was actually just me and my guy. So, yeah, that's the kind of work ethic you have to do to start from scratch when you don't have much to start with. Yeah. And I'm looking at it. Thank you for telling me about the virtual tour, because I'm going to keep going around your whole restaurant while you're talking, if that's all right. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. I really had no idea that I was like this nice looking in the inside, too, because like you were saying in the beginning, it sounded like you're still scrappy, even though you get a $700,000 loan, you were still making sure you weren't going to use it all up on something right away that your thought process was, let me go to old barns and use their wood or whatever to build it. Because that's what it kind of looks like from the outside, in case anyone's just listening and hasn't gone to the website yet. Yeah. So I started, it was uh, about a 3,800 square foot building. What I started with in 1995, building it in 1994. And in the year 2000, I doubled the size of it, more than doubled the size of it. Now it's like a 9,000 square foot building. Wait a sec. No, it was it was about 5,000 square feet. Sorry, because the kitchen is about 2,000. Yep. And uh, the dining room is about 3,500 back then. Then I, in 2000, I put an addition on. So what you could see right now is the full restaurant with the addition. We busted the wall out where the fireplace was. That was the end of the building. and added that extra three, 4,000 square feet, whatever it is, to the restaurant. Okay. I think I kind of see it looking at it now because I was like, dude, you really went all out. If this is your first restaurant to make it this big, you know, now it makes sense that you say it basically doubled in size in 2005. In 2000, yes. Oh, 2000, sorry. Yeah, I, I doubled the size of the Crystal Lake restaurant. In 2005, I built the Elgin restaurant, but the Elgin restaurant, I didn't do in two parts like that. I built it all at the size that it is now all at once. Well, yeah, let's jump back to, again, 1995 when you're still doing this. So as you're, again, making the transition to building a restaurant from building homes, what hiccups did you have? It sounds like, again, your dad was able to help you with getting the lot paid off and to get the loan. But do you want us to walk us through some of the struggles that you had to deal with? I had numerous struggles. One, I was really concerned about running out of cash. So getting the bar, you know, I went in the city, looked for a place that was out of business, got this old bar that was a place that was built in the 40s. The outside of the building, back then, I actually got the brick that's on the outside is the old cobblestone from the streets of Chicago. At that time, they were tearing down the old United Center, used to be called the Chicago Stadium, and the street in front of it, Madison Avenue, actually, they were tearing that up. and. My dad had connections with guys in public works, and you know we, we were able actually to get the old cobblestone from the streets of Chicago and ship them out here, a really good deal, and use that for the outside of the building. So I spent so much time trying to resource materials, getting the barns, and so it took me a good year to build the restaurants. It was a lot of hard work. That was some of the struggles. And I think the other struggle I came across a lot is the mental struggle of people telling me that I wasn't going to succeed. Even the banker, I, man, that guy would come in and he'd say, oh, you don't know what you're doing. And, you know, I was, I was like, oh, geez, you know, I mean, he was only doing it because he thought my dad knew what he was doing. And he figured my dad was going to tell me what to do. And 
that created a chip on my shoulder. In hindsight, you know, that guy really aggravated the shit out of me. You know, it was like, you know, his arrogant attitude created a chip on my shoulder where it's like, I'm going to prove this guy wrong. And that drove me, I think, a lot of the time to get the business done under budget. Well, not, I didn't really have a budget, but get it done for without running out of money and to make it succeed. All the people saying you can't build a restaurant that wasn't on the main street. Restaurants are hard. 80% of restaurants fail, all that stuff. So that's some of the, probably the biggest difficulties that I went through. Well, what did your wife think about you doing the construction thing and transitioning to building your own restaurant? I was blessed with a very understanding. She's my ex-wife now, but we still get along great. Mother of three great kids. And uh, she knew, I think, that I was going to be a workaholic. I think she she understood that. And uh, she was pretty patient about it. And I'm a pretty optimistic person, so I probably sold her on how great everything was going to be, too, uh, in the future. So that might have been part of it. Part of the reason I bring that up, too, is the free time that you might have been having with your kids and her at that time, it sounds like instead of spending time with them, you would have to spend time building the restaurant because it took you over a year and you were doing that on the nights and weekends, right? Yes. My youngest one, Danny, was two. Nick was four and Michelle was six. So they're pretty young ages. It was a handful for her. And uh, don't get me wrong. There was a lot of times she'd call me. Be like, I can't take it anymore. You know, when you're coming home, I had a lot of those phone calls too. So over this first year, it takes you a year to build it. So you end up opening in 1995 or was it 1996? No, I opened in 95. Yes. I opened in May of 95. Okay. And you started the year before, obviously 1994 when you started building it. Correct. So how did everything go? You finally built the thing and that's what you knew. Right. But it doesn't sound like you knew how to necessarily run a restaurant other than when you were a kid. Maybe you felt like you knew enough from watching your dad, but this is like a transition as well from constructing a restaurant to actually running it. Yeah, it certainly was. I guess the silver lining to my dad's style, my dad was not much of a coaching. Like I said, his old school Italian is like, yeah, go do this. And that's about as much teaching as he did, you know? <laughs> I knew our product really well. I had our family recipe for our Italian beef. I had our family recipe for our pizza. I knew how to order product. And my dad always expressed the importance of the kitchen, how it was the heart and soul of the restaurant. So I knew that part really well. His restaurant had virtually not much of a front of house service. So I didn't know much about that. He didn't really teach me a lot about running a business. His philosophy was, you say, Nick, ah, you know, the employees, they're going to steal from you. The idea is to kind of keep it down to a minimum. You know, they're all going to steal from you. Can't trust them at all, but hopefully they don't steal too much. <laughs> so that was my business background. There definitely was a big learning curve there. And to that point about, I think, why I'm so much of a coach, I have that coaching mentality now is because that was something missing from my dad. He just wasn't that, you know, so. I probably went all the way to the other side of that leadership. So you opened up and everything was successful right away. And that was the end of the business. Everything has gone up since then. It's kind of crazy because I hear the stories, you know, most stressed. I mean, even my Chicago restaurant, it wasn't quite as easy as it was. This one in Crystal Lake in 1995, obviously I did tap into the market and something that was needed because you know, I had so many people telling me that it was going to be hard and 80% of restaurants fail. 
by the time I opened the doors for the first time, I didn't have expectations that it would be busy. And I was blessed, man, we were busy right off the bat. And first, I wanted to hug every guest that walked in the door. I was so grateful. We were slammed right off the bat. And I had to learn really fast. I mean, I was working 20 to 22 hours a day. I'd go take a nap in the parking lot and then come back to work. You know, I mean, it was crazy. So I had to learn really quick how to train the team. And I couldn't do everything. You know, I was staying and mopping the floors and I was killing myself that first six months for sure. So I learned how to run the business through others really fast. It seemed like that worked out. I mean, did you get all the respect that you wanted to? Because you're 32 years old. So I feel like most, maybe not most, but at least some people are going to be older than you and maybe think that you don't know what you're doing. But it sounds like everything just kind of worked out, at least in the first six months. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was young. I mean, even as a construction guy, a lot of times I was a foreman at a young age too. So I, I was used to that. To me, what was most important it was a hard business. And I was just grateful that people would come and work with me. So that was the most important thing to me. It was like, I had a ton of respect for the team that was working in our kitchens in our the heart of the house, the servers that would come. My sister helped me in the beginning. She ran the front of house. So I was just wanting to help people be successful working for us. And I wanted to learn how to train people so they could be successful and uh, learn from each other. I remember about a year into it thinking to myself, okay, my restaurant's going to make it, right? <laughs> I'm putting cash in the bank now. My restaurant's going to make it. How do I build a great company? How do I build a company where people enjoy coming to work every day? And that, I think, drive to build a place that people enjoy coming to work is you know, a big part of where I'm at now. That's never stopped. I think that's an important part of my personal success. Well, were people not enjoying it over the first year? No, yeah, for sure. I had those experiences where I had just come out of working in the construction industry with all guys. And here I had a really diverse work group of Latinos and servers, women, and yelling and screaming, you know, and with the things that were successful with construction men was not successful so much with servers that were, you know, women. And you know, so, so yeah, I, I remember uh, servers being in tears. I remember a lot of bad experiences. I learned pretty quickly. I was like, no, this is not what I want. I want people to be happy at work. I got to figure out how I need to be a more effective leader for sure. That was really important to me. So even though the business was successful, you still saw that there were issues inside of it that you could make better, it seems like. Yeah, I think you tapped into a really key word there, Austin. I didn't feel like the business was successful at all from my definition of success. Now, everybody's got their own definition of success. But for me, I was making money. Money was coming in for sure, but that was not success. I wanted our team to be happy. I wanted to create a great environment. And I felt like if I could do that, then that would translate to the experience for our guests. I mean, I was having customers be happy, but it wasn't consistent. You know, we'd have mistakes and issues. And I didn't understand why a server or a host, actually, why they weren't always happy, why they didn't understand the meaning of smiling when a guest comes in, you know. So my version of success was, I think, a more holistic approach to having the employees, the team be happy too. And that's actually probably what drove me to starting to read books 
I remember one of my first books reading Howard Schultz's book, Pour Your Heart Into It. And that was inspirational for me. So things like that really started to change my perspective of leadership. So were you always just a happy guy? Because it sounds like you've got a pretty, you know, happy gratitude attitude, you know, right now, even listening to you, but even all the way in the beginning, because I mean, working construction, it didn't seem like those guys are always happy either. I was just wondering if you were always just the happy guy around. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I've always had an optimistic perspective. Yeah, I would say I'm an optimist for sure. It definitely more apt to see the glass half full than half empty. Yeah, so I guess that is my philosophy on life for sure. Which is good, especially for anything with hospitality, right? Especially restaurants. If every restaurant kind of had that perspective, I think even without leadership yet, like you having that thought process, I mean, that makes a huge difference going into it versus if you have like a negative attitude or you just want to get work done. Not only do you have to get work done in a restaurant, but you got to put a smile on your face and make people feel welcome. Yeah, yeah. You know, all the interviews you do, you probably have a little bit better insight on this than me. But I think entrepreneurs need to be optimists. I mean, it's, I think it's hard to be a, an entrepreneur and not be an optimist, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> no, I definitely agree with you. I think being like positive for sure, but being realistic too at some point. But to me, it's like some people are still hard workers, but they aren't happy people. And they might have, like you said, the definition of success. That depends person to person. Someone might be like, okay, I make a couple hundred grand and I'm a solo entrepreneur, right? And they might consider that success, but they might still be a negative person and no one wants to be around them versus like your idea of success is, okay, it sounds like financially we did well, but you still weren't feeling fulfilled and you wanted to make sure everyone felt that in your restaurant. A hundred percent. That is definitely true for me. Good point. So I guess over the first year after you did that, I mean, was there any other hiccups? Because it sounds like the transition went pretty well. The hiccups were, I was putting in a lot of time and I, I would say just overall, I was aware of uh, burnout myself and I wanted to be around my kids more as a dad too. I loved definitely a family man. So although the money was coming in, I really turned my attention to building systems then training the team. I would say a year or two in, the first times I had people coming up to me and asking for a raise. That didn't feel right to me. I was like, why are you asking me for a raise? I didn't like that permission thing, like go to daddy, so to speak, for a raise. So my first question back to them was, I don't know, should you get a raise? What could I do so that you understand the business the way I do, so that you could see how important profit is so we both could be successful and how valuable your growth and development is? So that's where I really started you know, to me, it was like, okay, if I could train people well and I could open the books to them and see the financials and just really be transparent with them, why can't people get their own raises? So a year or so in, I, I actually created this system that's still one of the strengths, a backbone of our business now, a merit-based, performance-based compensation program where, especially for the hourly team members in the heart of the house, you know, we start them out right around a little bit above minimum wage, but they can progress pretty quickly to get their own raises simply by looking at this career path chart that we have on the wall. And as people learn more positions in the kitchen, in the heart of the house, you know, they go from a rookie to a pro to an expert. And each one of those levels has like a dollar, dollar, quarter raise for them. And to me, that was key to them actually learning how they can create value for themselves and the company at the same time and get their own raises 
and not have to come to me or another manager. And that permission-based compensation program is, to me, just not effective for a healthy business. Energetic Austin here. And you know what? First impressions are everything. So if you're looking to make an impact with your online content, you need Issue, the easiest way to make your creative ideas come to life and share everywhere you want to be seen. Issue is the all-in-one platform to create and distribute beautiful digital content from marketing materials to magazines to flipbooks and brochures and more. There's no need for endless scrolling through PDFs. Issue features your creative in an easy-to-view way on every device. Make it once and distribute it everywhere without reformatting. Your content is already optimized for engagement and ready to share. Issue also works seamlessly with tools you already use like Canva, Dropbox, and InDesign. Not only that, but Issue helps creators, marketers, designers, and really anyone who wants to make content that stands out. And guess what? You can start using Issue for free. They also offer premium features that give a more customized experience. Get started with Issue today for free. Or if you sign up for a premium account, you'll get 50% off when you go to issue.com slash podcast and use code millionaire. That's issue, I-S-S-U-U.com slash podcast and use promo code millionaire at checkout for your free account or 50% off your premium account. That's issue, I-S-S-U-U.com slash podcast and use code millionaire. Picture this, two professional advisors are sitting with a business owner. They have just successfully sold their client's business for millions of dollars, a lifetime achievement and milestone. They've maximized value and minimized taxes, but the owner sits there seemingly unfulfilled and uncertain. How could this be? Well, the professional advisors sit back and think, have I met my client's objectives? To rapidly accelerate value and unlock wealth, the business owner must have business, personal, and financial goals equally aligned. Professional advisors must be prepared to help align these critical plans. Thus, the Exit Planning Institute came to be. As the only organization that offers the Certified Exit Planning Advisor credential, the Exit Planning Institute provides professional advisors with the training, knowledge, tools, and network needed to help business owners build more valuable and transferable companies. The SEPA Credentialing Program is a one-week course that is available both in person and online. Listeners receive a special offer when they register. Enter code EXIT at checkout to receive $1,000 off retail price for any remaining 2021 program. Will you be prepared to help when a business owner turns to you as their advisor? Register today at earnsepa.com. That's earncepa.com. And did you get these ideas by like reading business books? Because it sounded like at this point in time, that's when you started, I guess, getting into business books and wanting to make your restaurant and business run better. Some of it. Yeah, for sure. That one. No, I think it was just me fumbling around and <laughs> figuring things out on my own. Kind of funny. I mean, it took me a few years to get it straightened out, but I did learn a lot. I think uh, what's that other Jim Collins old book, really old book about. Good to great. No, before that, uh, geez, it's it's on one of my shelves over here. Built to last. Built to last. Yes, thank you, man. You're good, Austin. Thank Google. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I started really tapping into creating an environment. I didn't even know about culture back then, but I creating a team environment for the team, you know, and 
that led me to seeking out how to create meaning at work and finding that consultant, like I talked about, you know, finding Rudy Mick and, and defining our purpose and our values. That's where I really started to get more sophisticated in the systems. Those early years was me just tinkering around every day. This could be better. Our ordering system, uh, going from handwritten tickets to computers and then getting on the phone with our point of sale system and computer. And, and you know, <laughs> that early days, I was helping write the software for the point of sale system because I was so into improving systems. You know, again, it's probably the entrepreneurship in me. But <laughs> it's fun stuff back then for sure. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily think that you get this one idea from one book, but I think as soon as you start reading more or listening to more podcasts or whatever, you just pull one idea from another and you kind of meld it to be your own. But if you want to read any business book to that time, maybe you probably won't even thought of like, okay, maybe I need to systematize things, right? So it seems like you came up with a clever way to make it good for your business. And can you give us a little bit more detailed example of how that system worked as far as maybe the lowest paid employee and how they could work their way up? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that's what I started with. I started with the very basic servers, the front of house servers. It's a little different because they're more like the sales team, right? There's a base salary for sure, but their tips are going to be their compensation. I also have a program for them too. But really how I first started was, again, because I know kitchens are the heart of the house. If you have a new team member that comes in the next, the first thing they need to do is make our pizzas. So I started, okay, minimum wage, you're going to make our pizzas. But then I thought, okay, I want to make sure they follow our recipe. And I started to measure, like, what does consistency look like on the pizza line? And then rewarding that with, as soon as you showed consistency over a time frame, I think it was 40 hours with no mistakes and having, you know, our basic pizzas, you were going to get a quarter raise right off the bat just to show consistency. And then when you showed that you could be on time, then I gave them another bump of a quarter. Now, to get a bigger raise, they had to show that they were willing to learn how to do more things than just pizzas. Then we started learning how to work the grill. When they could learn the grill and salads, it was a couple things together. Now, that would be a buck raise. Now, when they learned how to work the ovens, not just cutting ovens, for cutting pizzas, right? But also cutting and pulling the ovens. Now that's another like whole work area. That would be a buck raise. Because to me, it's like, okay, now I could have one person that could do multiple things in a restaurant. Instead of having two or three people, I might only have one person. And I would share this. As I was building these systems, I involved the people that were helping me build the systems. I would have that cook or even when I started building the host training, I would have the host help me build that training. <laughs> you know, we would collaborate in this stuff. So that's really how it started. And I still think that's the most effective process is involving the team in systems as you build systems. I highly suggest that for any entrepreneur. Well, how did you track that? Was this when you went to the computer system or like, let's just say you hired me as the minimum wage person at the time and I wanted to get a 25 cent raise. Was there like a chart? Because it just seems easy you just saying that. But if I'm like the employee, I want to make sure that I can see these goals and like how I can reach them to get paid. Yeah, I actually took a time card. At that time, we had stopped using time cards. That's how old I am. There was no punch clocks anymore. <laughs> I would actually take the time card and have them just fill it in by hand and keep it in their folder. 
every time they did a shift, I would just initial that they worked in a six-hour shift or a four-hour shift. And we would keep track of, did you have any mistakes? You know, usually I was in the shift, so I would know if they had any mistakes. And I would initial that shift until they completed that time card just for keeping track of mistakes as an example. Yeah. Things would be posted up on a wall, on a cork board, and, you know, we would very transparent in doing it together. Going even all the way up to 2000. So did everything just work well then? Because again, your first year financially seemed like it worked well. And then the second year you wanted to take in the account of making sure everyone was happy and could get their raises, if you will. But did you have any bumps or hurdles before you reached the year 2000? I did have a lot of years of success. I would say those first few years of 95, I mean, the restaurants were busier than I ever expected. We were on two and a half hour waits, which is why I put the addition on. You know, I wanted to build this restaurant where the neighbors and the families would come together. And sure enough, on a Friday night, we get a walk-in of the kids' baseball team would walk in, the girls' basketball team, whatever. You know, we consistently get these big walk-ins of 30 and 40 people, more than just the neighbors getting together. My restaurant at that time could seat like 170 people. So that's where I wanted to put an addition on where we could actually have a big banquet room with big tables so we could seat a party of 20 <laughs> at one time. In a lot of ways, I did have a, a long few years there of good success, fortunately, to actually be able to fund that expansion myself. The general contract, I didn't do as much of the building, although I did put my tools on to put the addition together. There was uh, quite a few years of success in those first, for sure. Did it feel good sticking it to the banker who said you were going to fail? I have to admit, yeah, I enjoyed when that guy came in and uh, would eat at the restaurant. And I enjoyed seeing him eating and saying, wow, this place is really busy. You're doing pretty good. I'm like, yep, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I wasn't spiteful or anything, but in my mind, I was like, yes, yes, I am. Thank you. We all need that motivation. I definitely agree with you because you don't want to be spiteful, but you're like, it pissed you off, obviously, at the time. It pissed me off, too. But you need that internal motivation that you're like, okay, well, you actually did help me, even though you kind of were a dick, it seemed like, when you said that, right? Yeah, exactly. I think that's true. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you probably know this, right? I hear this, too, in athletes, right? They find a way to put a chip on their shoulder, right? Something that they feel like, ah, I got something that I got to prove to myself or something, you know? So, yes, that was definitely a motivator. Yeah. I mean, I've been trying to prove to my mom this whole time that I'm not her least favorite child, but I've not succeeded in that yet, Nick. So maybe one day. There you go. Yep. That's a common thread in entrepreneurs. Yeah. I got that chip on my shoulder to prove my mom wrong. Yeah. There's a lot of us trying to make mom or dad happy for sure. Still. <laughs> you didn't think my joke was funny, Nick, but that's all right. Uh, I won't take it personally. <laughs> no, well, I, I'm connecting with it. I'm still trying to make my dad happy. I'm trying to prove my dad. Same thing. <laughs> so you do the expansion, right, in 2000. So has everything been good since? I think at one point, didn't you have some issues where you, you thought you might not make it with this restaurant? Here's the downside of success and overconfidence, right? I had 95, 2000, I put the addition on, place was packed again. Wow, that addition was the greatest thing. I, you know, Now we're doubling our revenue. I was really starting to learn, make a lot of money. The thing that was interesting to me, though, is although I was making a lot of money, I still had a, a feeling like emptiness around that whole my definition of success. Then I found Rudy, and he helped us define our purpose and values. 
there was actually, we were doing so well and it creates such a great experience for our community and our team that I actually had this internal drive to say, you know, I think America needs more of this kind of experience in the communities in America. I wanted to bring more than Nick's experience to other communities. And that's what drove me to want to open more restaurants and actually not just open restaurants that just do a whole bunch of food and a whole bunch of pizza. I really wanted to have a values, have that kind of culture where we actually create a great experience for the people who work there too around values and how to teach values in business and teach open books and transparency. That's what drove me to open the Elgin restaurant. And again, had great success in 2005 when I opened that Elgin restaurant too. So much so that I began to think that I couldn't fail. And all the way up until the recession in 2007, I started to open a Chicago restaurant in 2007 was the first time I got a little bit of a kick in the ass and realized that I actually could fail. <laughs> so that's a lesson I learned about optimism and realism, right? And actually some financial health as well. I got a lesson that those years of, I would say 2007 to 2011 were real hard for me. That was the, probably one of the toughest years, now that you mention it. Tell us about it, because that's what I was like wondering. I'm like, dude, if it's just all been good uphill the whole way, this is not exciting. I get to hear some downfalls, right? <laughs> for sure. I think I had a lot of the, you know, again, I built systems and everything so I could open more restaurants and not have the restaurant implode so that I wouldn't have to be there. I found a great location in Chicago in 2007, was going to open that up. And what I didn't foresee was the recession happening. Just about the time we were ready to get the end loan, I had already invested a couple hundred thousand in remodeling an older building in Chicago. The bank I had at that time, they backed out of opening our restaurant and left me kind of high and dry with the lease I already signed on and investing $200,000 in remodeling. So I had to stop that third restaurant. I thought it would just be a year. I didn't know the recession would be more than a year. I just said, okay, we're just going to hold off on this for a year and focus on the two restaurants that we had. And sure enough, I had to get out of that lease after paying it a year. So basically paying for three restaurants and only having two, I wiped out all our reserves. We had no cash reserves. We were running tight and sales were dropping because of the recession, right? All the unemployment were in double digits in 2008, 2009. It was really difficult out in the suburbs of Chicago. And finally, through that struggle of barely succeeding, that second restaurant, Elgin, that really was the one that got hit the hardest. That restaurant was barely making it. Some months it wasn't making it, but other months it was. The Crystal Lake restaurant was sustaining itself for sure, and sometimes covering for the other restaurant when the other restaurant wasn't. When we got to some light at the end of the tunnel in 2011, in 2011, I was really excited because in that across the street from that Elgin restaurant, they're going to build this Sam's Club and Walmart super center right, right across. And I thought, holy cow, here we go. We're going to have a ton of traffic right across the street from us, and we're going to get out of this recession now. And that's what I thought, which was true. But that time to get there, what I didn't foresee was how hard it was going to be during that construction phase of tearing up that whole intersection in front of us, tearing up the roads and uh, all the barricades and road closures, 
killed our business. Our sales dropped 50%. You know, it was already the recession as it was. So we got into 2011 there and I thought we were done. I thought our restaurant was, we were going to close up both restaurants and went through a really hard time. And to the point that summer of 2011, I began to really start to look at bankruptcy and closing our business after all those years. It was a pretty scary time for sure. Oh yeah, that doesn't sound like fun. So, I mean, it sounded like everything was working up, right? Up till that point. Yeah, I learned that all those years of success I had gave me a false sense of success and I didn't have enough cash in the bank. I didn't have enough reserves. I wasn't looking at my balance sheet. I had looked at store metrics really well and did good with individual metrics, but I never learned to look at my balance sheet, liabilities and assets, you know, and a whole company level. And now that lack of depth of understanding of my financials was kicking me in the butt, you know, here I I was going to go out of business. I really thought we got to September and... Those big super centers across the street were supposed to open in October, the end of October. We get to September and I'm like, I learned how to do a cash flow projection. And I could see that in my cash flow projection that I only had about four weeks left of cash where I wasn't going to be able to make payroll anymore. Our summer sales, which is usually the best sales, weren't helping us. The road construction had killed us. I actually got to a point at the end of the summer where I really thought I was going to close the doors and I came to a choice point where I had to start talking to our team and I looked at consultants. I started looking at advisors and like, I'm done. I had leveraged my house again. I had sold my Mercedes. I had done everything I could. I was settled on the fact that I was going to actually have to close the doors. Really scary time. Were you still married at this point in time? No, I had gone through a divorce. Yes, you're right. That too had happened. <laughs> so I was right at that point, yes, where I was, oh boy, yeah, you're, you're taking me back to how tough that was back then, right in the beginning. Yeah, it was a lot of stressors on my family. It did feel like my world was coming all to a halt, for sure. When did you get divorced? It was, I think, 2009. Yeah, it was pretty ripe right around 2011. So why did you get divorced? A big part of it really was my workaholic tendencies, for sure. And I would say the other part, I was on a journey of personal growth in those 2006, 2007, 2008 years. I was really starting to learn, really wanting to understand the meaning of life, what my personal purpose was. Although I had asked my ex-wife to come with me on that journey, that was not something she wanted to be a part of, which is fine. She's a great person, a wonderful mom, and it's just not for her, you know? So, you know, we didn't have a horrible, like, drag out divorce. I was blessed with, we both cared a lot about our kids. We were just going in two different paths, two different journeys. Well, what do you mean? Do you mean like you wanted to stop drinking and she didn't want to? Or what's that mean with the personal growth? and? someone wanting to go with you or not go with you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I wasn't a partier. I wasn't a heavy drinker or anything like that. It was just, I think I was finding myself not happy in my marriage, but mostly probably because I was not finding my purpose, you know, and that was really what was at the core. I had read a book by George Leonard called Mastery, 
And that was to me like a initiative to understand that there was more in life. And I just really wanted to go on that journey. I wanted to go to retreats and she didn't want to go on retreats. I wanted to learn the meaning of life. She didn't care about the meaning of life. <laughs> you know, I was like, why am I here? Why am I on earth? She was a mom and she loved taking care of the kids and she didn't understand that personal inquiry into oneself, so to speak. Did you figure it out? I figured out that that's actually an okay path. I'm still on it, you know, right? I do have a deeper understanding of my personal purpose. Now, for sure, my purpose is I inspire purpose and values in people's work and life while inspiring leaders to trust their people while tracking their performance in support of each of us reaching our own potential. So it sounds like you had already figured that out. I mean, even early on after year one of the restaurant, right? Intuitively, I think that was inside me for sure, but I didn't articulate it. I didn't know what it was and which ties back to the purpose of the restaurants as well. And so they're definitely connected. Actually being a coach and helping other people's growth and development was something I'm really passionate about. So did you go on those retreats like without her? And that's what kind of eventually led to the divorce? Yep. One retreat to Esalen and learning about meditation and yoga and then saying, you got to come with me. I want to go on another one. And she was like, no, I don't want to do that. So I started doing more on my own. We did less together and one thing led to another. Again, I think all the stories I hear about unhealthy divorces and horrible divorces, I was blessed to have one that was easier in that respect that, you know, we still got along. We we're still friends and we still cared a lot about our kids. I moved out of the house and moved not even 10 minutes away, you know, so I could keep coaching my kids and keep involved with the family. And I'm still grateful to my ex for that kind of understanding. But even if you went on these retreats, from my perspective, I mean, you're the one who went on them. So you tell me. I couldn't see a lot of couples going, to be honest. Like I could see a business person like yourself going, especially if she has to take care of the kids. She doesn't really have a choice to. But to me, it's hard to imagine that a couple, maybe there are work couples and did these retreats. Was this like more business oriented or like something bigger where couples would go? Or just tell me about that. Yeah. Esalen in Big Sur, California was my first place. That was mostly my work with George Leonard, actually, at the time and learned about Aikido and yoga and meditation. And then the next one I went to was also a retreat about yoga and meditation. Then I wanted to learn more about psychology and how organizational psychology. I went to the Gestalt Institute in Massachusetts. And that to me was a retreat that was both business and personal. So that was my path where I actually saw synergies in the Gestalt philosophy behind organizational psychology is based in a way, there's definitely synergy behind <laughs> yoga philosophy and gestalt systems and systems theory, for sure. It's G-E-S-A-L-T dot org, gestalt dot org. There's a study center in Massachusetts. There's one in Cleveland, Ohio. I think that one in Massachusetts is the Gestalt International Study Center. G-I-S-C is the abbreviation. Is this like Church of Scientology type of stuff here or what? Not at all. <laughs> I'm just asking. I have no idea. 
You're right. Yeah, it's it's hard to explain, but it's an organizational psychology that means, I think in German, but it means whole. So it's a holistic process. It's got foundations, you know, based on Freud and Jungian psychology. It takes all those disciplines and combines them in uh, their own systems theory around the Gestalt experience and how awareness, it starts with self-awareness and that whole process that we go to and at the small systems level to the organization, big systems level. So there's old school Gestalt theory that was based on Fritz Perl's individual clinical psychology. This is the organizational psychology system. So part of your, your reason and your marriage ending at this point too, you were just becoming too obsessive with this at this point in time. You just kind of had an obsessive personality where before maybe it was business and then maybe you're becoming obsessive about this and learning about this. Yeah, this interview, you're getting to know me really well, Austin. Way to go, <laughs> for sure. I definitely have that obsessive. I dive into something, I dive in fully, uh, 100%. I think a lot of entrepreneurs have this, man. I mean, I'm the same way too. Maybe not to this degree, but I could see like every entrepreneur who wants a great business, I think you have to be obsessive at some point in time. But through my lifetime, I've always found myself to be a lifelong learner and not just about business, even though I mostly like business and talking about business. There's certain other things like just learning about cosmology. It's interesting to me to learn about the stars and, you know, different ways of thinking. It's fun for me to be a learner and you become obsessed with it. And again, I think a lot of the personality traits, that's what a lot of entrepreneurs have. And obviously it sounds like you had as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then the fun part, Austin, you learn how it's all connected, right? <laughs> we get to learn how it's like, oh, this ties back to that. And it's, that's the cool thing about capitalism in I think our society got a little bit off track with capitalism for a few years in the 80s and 90s. You know, what I love about organizations like Small Giants or Conscious Capitalism, capitalism actually could be a really positive part of our society when we do it the way it was originally intended to be a part of the community, to be a benefit in people's lives, to have a positive influence on our society. And that ties back to individuals in psychology and meaning in life, right? It's all tied together, which is also relevant to the cosmos as well. So it's all tied together. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Because I know you said you'd be an open book. So did you regret doing anything at that point in time? Again, because that's why I want to just tie back if you were divorced at that point in time or not, because you still had your kids you would see from time to time. But I don't know if you're single, but if all your time was spent at this time in the business in 2011, when you thought it was going to close, this is your whole life at that point. Well, I got a really big lesson, one about the balance sheet, right, for sure. But really the biggest lesson, I think, balance sheet you could learn, you can go to the school and learn that. What I got in 2011 was here I had built my business around our purpose, around using our values as a model for running the business. And here I am about to go out of business and about to close the doors. And I had a choice, you know, it's like, do I do like a lot of entrepreneurs and keep it to myself, which is what I was kind of doing in the beginning was I wasn't sharing how much of a struggle this was and how stressful it was. And we did have open books or our team was seeing our financials. So I started to open up more about I'm scared, guys, to my servers, to my managers. It's like, I don't think we're going to make it. And I got to that point where I remember in September of 2011, where I saw my cash flow projections and I see that I'm going to run out of cash in four weeks, 
I just went back to the team and I told the team, team being the servers, the kitchen team, these are teenagers and 20-somethings. And I shared in one of our pre-shifts, I said, I got some sad news. I got to tell you all, it might be time for you all to go look for other jobs because I think we got about four weeks left. We're not going to make it and we're going to probably have to close our doors. And I was on the verge of tears. You know, here we are. This is a Saturday night you know, with the team. And they're like, Nick, we're in this together. We don't want to give up. We got to figure this out. And together, we actually decided to share with our community. This is 2011. This is before Kickstarter or anything, okay? <laughs> you know, And their idea was, we got to tell our guests that we're going to go out of business. I'm like, what are you nuts? I go, we can't tell our guests. But no, the team talked me into it. And they said, we got to tell our guests. So I wrote a letter. I had written a letter to our team and the guests about, well, to our guests, really. You know, we had a database of frequent loyalty program of, I don't know, I, th I think it was about 20,000 people in that database. And I shared that to our guests that, okay, we're going to go out of business. And I want our guests to know that it wasn't about our managers. It wasn't about the team. It was my fault. I was the one who overextended us. I got us in this financial, I put us in a vulnerable state in the first place. And then the recession hit. And it was the team actually that helped us get through it this long. And I said this in this letter. And I share that with my servers and bartenders and kitchen team and cooks. And I said, here's the letter. I, you know, what do you think? And they said, this is exactly what we do. We have to share this with all of our guests in our loyalty program. I was like, are you sure about that? They're like, yeah, yeah. And here I am, I'm hesitant to do that. So I share it with our banker. I share it with our consultants. And sure enough, the professionals, our PR company, and, and they're like, no, no, don't share that. That letter is way too honest, especially my banker. He's like, you're being way too honest. Your guests are never going to come in. Your purveyors are going to say, you're running out of cash. We're not delivering to you anymore. You're going to have mutiny. So I went back to my team and I told them that, what the professionals were telling us, right? And they're saying, nope. We think we should do this anyhow. We disagree with them. This is how we use our values through a tough situation. So honestly, Austin, through that conversation, through that weekend, that those next couple of days, that Monday, I think it was a Tuesday where I finally decided to go ahead and send that letter that I had written, put it on our database through our blast email to our 20,000 frequent diners. I sent that letter out. and. uh it's amazing what happened next. We had guests in both restaurants. And within a half hour, 20 minutes, a half hour of sending that letter out, the phone started ringing off the hook. People started showing up at our door. We had a two-hour wait by the time dinner time came around. Unbelievable. People calling us saying, Nick, we're here to support you. We're bringing our high school team in. All kinds of stuff unbelievable what happened. This is before Kickstarter, but this is like our own Kickstarter. You know, We had five weeks of 110% increase in sales because of that letter and our community coming in to support us. That was the lesson I got. That lesson of, holy shit, here I thought I was a failure. I thought maybe I spent too much time on training. Maybe I should be selling steak or pasta or something. I was beating myself up. And here, what I just got over those weeks was a lesson in purpose and values and doing and trusting my team and our community 
over the years had come back in spades. And that's when I decided I need to share how this is the best way to run a business. I need to scream this from the mountaintops. Really big lesson. And do you still have that letter today? I do. I have it saved on my laptop. Can I get a copy and put it in the show notes for everyone to check out? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's archived on our website, even if you could go back in the archives, but I'll send it to you. I can do that too. So I'll check it out. I think I said it. I heard your story like 10 years ago, literally almost, maybe eight to 10 years ago. And it's like, I remember you being all about systems and whatnot, but then that's what I was alluding to. I'm like, I remember at one point I thought you're about to close and you sent out a letter. And again, it was the people in your restaurant who had suggested it. And I'm like, that was so smart because I've never heard anyone do that. And also at the end of the day, if you're about to go out of business, what do you have to lose by doing that? And I just think there's so many people who are listening right now that maybe they're struggling with their business and they're giving it their all, right? And they're like, okay, maybe I just need to close down, but why not just try to send out an email and let people know? I don't think there's going to ever be any harm. And that's the main thing I always remembered from your story. Yeah, that's cool. Thank you. I agree with you 100%. Be vulnerable. Go to your team. Sometimes as entrepreneurs, as managers, as leaders, the team looks up to us and we get this false perception that we can't be vulnerable in front of them. Amazing when we open up and say, hey, guys, I don't have the answer. What do you think? I don't know what to do anymore. To me, that was huge. You said within hours, literally, the phone was ringing off the hook and you couldn't get anyone in there before that? Yes. I mean, that letter that I didn't want to share on social media, we just shared. It ended up going viral all over social media. I had like 400 shares within an hour. It was pretty amazing. Do you still remember that feeling and what it looked like when you were in the restaurant, when people started coming in? Yeah, I sure do. And also the other crazy thing is like all hands on deck. I had former team members calling and coming in and working for the weekend because we were 100% busier than we had been all summer, you know? So we were short-staffed and I had team members coming in and working for free and just saying, I'm here for the weekend, you know? Let me work Friday night, Saturday night. And I had guests, you know, we'd make mistakes and guests saying, you know what? I'm like, let me buy your pizza. They're like, oh no, we're buying another pizza. We're paying for full price and then some, you know? I was like crazy things like that. It was so amazing. It really was. You know, when it comes to your next business read, you do have options. You could pick up that trendy new buzzwordy business book, or you could learn the timeless buzzword free lessons of a straightforward modern classic. I'm talking about Good Profit by Charles Koch, a CEO with a real world track record of decade upon decade of actual exponential business growth. Want the lessons from someone who's actually done it? Start by visiting goodprofitbook.com. That's goodprofitbook.com. Yeah, so hopefully that info was useful for you. What I found most useful is understanding like... Shit. <sighs> well... I guess we'll never know, but if you want to know what I can help you out with on our one-on-one -on -one Patreon call, then become a member today. And then at that point, 
So did everything start doing well? Was it just a one weekend hit or were you just full from then on? I mean, I didn't remember you said the Walmart was going across the street and that's what you kept waiting for. I imagine it finally opened and that might have helped. But just tell us what happened from there. Yeah, yeah. We had a solid four or five weeks of that kind of business. It was pretty amazing. It started to tail off after that a little bit, but I mean, it never dropped back to the levels we were pre-opening of the place across the street or anything. And we stayed probably 25% or 50% higher. So yes, the bank who told us this is a bad idea, (laughs) they actually called and said, you know what? We're getting pressure from our own customers and team members. We're going to help you restructure your loan. There was work to do afterwards for sure. We had to restructure our loan, restructure our debt, but everybody worked together. You know, our vendors worked with us, you know, was uh, really a team effort. And, you know, I, I can't say enough. I mean, it, it's what I write about in my book as well. This is a pie, you know, I feel like this is the way forward in capitalism nowadays. I think our society, what's happening now is another example of there's a different way to the old business model of us and them and the structure of leadership is all changing. We could be more conscious about how we run our businesses now. And to this day, the values and the purpose and the transparency is key to our success. Yeah. And I'll have the link again in the show notes as well to link to your book because I'm buying one right now, Nick. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it, Austin. Just bought it. I can tell you're in the restaurant since I did the 3D tour. The front of your book is you in your restaurant, right? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay, good. I would look like an idiot if I said that and that wasn't (laughs) true. So that was 2011. So then the last nine, 10 years, have they just slowly gotten better? Or is there anything else you think we could learn in the last 10 years of running the restaurant? Yeah, yeah, they have gotten better. And what's cool, I'm still in business. We went through a pandemic and we got through the pandemic. I also tried to open, again, that back to where we started about persevering. I still wanted to open a restaurant back in my old neighborhood. I tried to open one in Chicago again. It failed. Again, it was a couple things, a bad location. But the team in these two restaurants persevere. Our culture perseveres, even though I made a mistake. You know, in the school, the part of our business that has continued to be successful is the internal growth and leadership development programs we have within our organization. To me, that's its own version of success. I continue to get people come back to me that have gone on to their careers and tell us about how the communication, our intentional communication model, our leadership development has what we call conscious leadership has taught them how to have good emotional intelligence skills. And that to me is a big part of success. I look at you bringing that word full circle, the perseverance. You remember I started off the interview with that? Yes. <laughs> Did you do that just to make me feel better? No, it's true. The perseverance of our culture, I think, is really what's key. We've stayed true to our purpose. We've stayed true to our values. And I have general managers, managers, team members here that run these restaurants and teach their learners. That's one of our values, actually, to your lifelong learners, right? You fit right in with our culture, Austin, because that's what it's really all about. Well, glad I fit in somewhere. And so how did you make the transition of being in the restaurant every day? It seems like, again, you started doing something else as well. What I'm really doing in the Trust and Track Institute and teaching other organizations how to build a culture, how to build a positive work environment, 
and the leadership and the training programs that we have in other industries is really the same thing I was doing in the restaurants. It's just my personal purpose expanded and evolved into other industries so I could have an impact even more so. Now I have a great impact on the people that come to work at Next. Now I could have that same impact with other clients, with other businesses as well. So that's your business now that you do. It's called the Trust and Track Institute. Yeah, yeah which is a leadership. Uh, Paul Burlingham wrote about us in Inc. Magazine back in 2010. And he defined that term, trust and track leadership, which is kind of the opposite of command and control leadership. <laughs> and that's why you spend most of your time? Or do you do anything within the restaurant today? No, I actually, during the pandemic, I would say it's 50-50. I definitely got back involved more with operations as we pivoted the restaurants to be the indoor dining clothes and be focused on carryout and delivery. I do have a few clients we're getting on the other side of this pandemic and we've adapted really well. The restaurants are doing good and I've back to focusing on the Trust and Track Institute more so. Well, did you ever put this in your financials about closing your restaurant from not letting patrons come in for over a year? I had not. No. <laughs> I was so happy that we had communication systems and values in place because it's made a big difference in getting through this. Yeah. And to me, I mean, I know we didn't have much time to talk about it, but it seems like that probably might have been the biggest hurdle for you. I don't know. Just looking back, what do you think has been? I would say the biggest hurdle was in 2011, where I thought we were going to close for sure. But I don't know, this pandemic has been one heck of a hurdle as well. So I would say they're pretty much the same. <laughs> I don't know. There was a time in March and April where I thought the restaurant business was, even though I had the trust and track was sustaining itself as its own business, I didn't want to close these restaurants. So that was pretty scary too. Well, have you been able to divvy up your time and grow the Trust and Track Institute? Because, I mean, we heard all about growing the pizza restaurant and whatnot, but it seems like if you're spending 50-50 of your time growing another business too, was that difficult? Yeah, I haven't done that part well yet. I mean, it's only four of us in the Trust and Track business, so I still have to work on it a lot. My son, Nick, has also helped me a lot, but he's also working for a consulting business. You know, so all of us are doing two things at once. <laughs> so I haven't gotten to that kind of scale in the consulting business yet. So did your son say he'll never open up a restaurant as well? Yes, all three of my kids have said that. <laughs> but you said that at one point in time as well, right? Yeah, so who knows, right? All three of them have grown up working in the restaurants for sure. Yeah, that's funny. Yep. My oldest is 30, and then they're in their late 20s. So they're on their own path for sure. Well, thanks for coming on, Nick, and sharing your story. If anyone wanted to reach out to you and say thank you for doing the podcast, what's the best way for them to reach out? They could reach me at nick at nickspizzapub.com. That's a real easy way. Or Nick at the Trust and Track Institute.com. Either way, they're both connected. Or I'm on LinkedIn as well, for sure. Instagram, Nick on Purpose. Check out my book, our website. Either way. Yeah. And I literally did order the book while we were talking. So you got at least one more order this past month. Thank you. I appreciate it. The publisher appreciates it a lot as well. <laughs> as closing up, was there anything that I should ask you that I didn't? You ask more in-depth questions than I've ever been asked. I really appreciate that. I'm grateful for the work you're doing. I really want to be in service of other entrepreneurs 
And that's why I appreciate about your podcast and your questions. It's not all easy. And I don't know that there's any kind of study guide or easy to do list of how to do this. And the invitation to look at how we build a business from the inside out, I think is a great opportunity. And you've asked the questions that I think will be helpful for others to know a little bit more about that. So thank you. Well, thank you. I do the easy part. I just ask the questions. You got to answer them, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on, Nick. I really do appreciate it. And hopefully, I'm sure everyone got a lot of value. So I'm sure they'll be messaging you on LinkedIn or sending you emails to thank you or ask questions. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Austin. Have a great rest of your day. Blessings. Guess what, Patreon members? I got our next five group calls already lined up for you. We got Jonathan Cogley from episode 85 taking your questions on how to find other entrepreneurs to partner with. Then we got Aviv Shagli for you, who's an entrepreneur from Israel. He's already had two successful business exits, and his interview is really inspiring. Next, we got Lisa Wise from episode 37, where she'll tell you exactly how she grew her real estate management company from the ground up and how you can too. Next, we got Ron Holt from episode 197, telling you how he grew two maids in a mop, not to be confused with two girls and one cup. And he basically grew his single location cleaning business to now a franchise model that covers 81 markets in the US, and he'll tell you how you can do the exact same thing. And last but not least, and by popular demand, we have Doug Smith from episode 182, which might have been our most open interview of all time. Well, anyhow, I hope you join us on these calls. I only invite my favorite guests back to do these group calls, and we try to have a good time while also getting your business questions answered. Plus, if you ever miss a call, we've got a back catalog of every group call. So if you're tired of, I don't know, being a passive pussy, then come join us. I mean, are you just going to keep listening to this podcast and not do anything? Or are you going to be proactive and get in the game? Well, hopefully it's the latter, because it helps you and me. And if you're interested in becoming a Patreon member and you're not already, then go visit our website at millionaire-interviews.com and sign up today, where you'll get instant access to all past group calls, plus our special Patreon episodes. So hopefully you join us on the group call and become a member today.